This person died in 2015 at the age of 83. It's a man. He died of end-stage obstructive pulmonary disease after years of smoking, which he'd given up 30 years earlier. Okay, so we have a chronic smoker. That's really all I'm getting from that clue. Next. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not a lot to go on. All right. His artistic pursuits included poetry, photography, and music, in addition to acting. Ah, uh, okay, so he's an actor. So we got kind of a renaissance man thinking going on here. Very much so. Uh, Do you want to take a wild stab at who it might be? I, I got nothing right now. Okay. He had a starring role in the dramatic television series Mission Impossible and frequently performed on stage, notably as Tevi in Fiddler on the Roof. He played Tevi in Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs> I have no idea who that character is. The only person I can think of would be the guy... I can't pronounce his name. I think it's Topol from the movie Fiddler on the Roof. That's all I've got right now. Okay, not it. This is a wildly misleading clue. In 1970, he released a country album, which featured, among other songs, a cover of Johnny Cash's I Walk the Line. <laughs> As you said, not helpful. <laughs> <laughs> the problem is any clue that's a little bit helpful is a dead giveaway here. Is it Wes Craven? No, but actually not a bad guess, given how unhelpful all these clues are. Okay, this is probably going to give it away. He wrote two autobiographies. The first, published in 1975, was called I Am Not Spock. (laughs) (laughs) The one, the only, the all-time great Leonard Nimoy. Today's dead guest is Leonard Nimoy. (laughs) Live long and prosper. Welcome to Famous and Gravy, a conversation about what really matters in life, one dead celebrity at a time. I'm Michael Osborne. And my name is Amit Kapoor. Through a series of questions about a famous person's inner and outer life, we want to figure out the things in life that we actually desire. And ultimately, we answer the big question, would you want their life? Today, Leonard Nimoy, died 2015, age 83. We're going to begin with the first line of Leonard Nimoy's obituary. Leonard Nimoy, the sonorous, gaunt-faced actor who won a worshipful global following as Mr. Spock, the resolutely logical human alien first officer of the Starship Enterprise and the television and movie juggernaut Star Trek, died on Friday morning at his home in the Bel Air section of Los Angeles. Ahmed, your reaction to the first line of Leonard Nimoy's obituary? It's great, but what is sonorous? Song-like, I would assume. I never thought of him that way. A sonorous? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It does direct attention to his vocal qualities. I don't, he's got an excellent voice. I mean, this will come up in a later category, but he's got an excellent voice. I guess. And gaunt-faced, is that, that's a little insulting? Gaunt-faced? It's descriptive. It's not wrong. Is it inaccurate? It's extremely accurate, but it's just sort of negative. I don't know. You can be gaunt and handsome, can't you? You're right. It has a negative connotation. Wait, it just means long and thin? That's what I think of when I hear the word gaunt. Yeah, well, I kind of picture the zombie indenture. Of the cheeks. Yeah, yeah. Which I guess he did kind of have. I feel like it's pretty on the money. Like, yeah. I would describe his face as gaunt. Whether it's an insult or not, it's accurate. And I feel like that's what matters most in these obituaries. Yeah. and that was off the bat. I mean, they came back with worshipful, juggernaut, those types of things. They did a good service. Scale of one to ten. Eight. Oh, yeah, okay. That feels about right. All right. Okay. Let's get to the categories. So the first question is five things I love about you. Amit, what are five things you love about Leonard Nimoy? Number one, I think by a long shot, was that he directed Three Men and a Baby. Yeah. I just, <laughs> I didn't know that know. prior to researching this show. And I loved that movie and I loved that he directed it. He also directed several of the Star Trek movies. Yeah. And then directs Three Men and a Baby. So wait, you said, I love that movie. Have you seen Three Men and a Baby recently? 
No. I mean, I loved it 25 years ago. When it came out. I don't yeah. think I want to rewatch it <laughs> for that reason. I do wonder about its shelf life, if it still holds up. I'd have a hard time imagining. Hell of a cast, though. Yeah, Gutenberg, Danson, and Tom Selleck. Yeah, and there is something really nice about picturing Leonard Nimoy hanging out with those three guys in 1987 or whatever it was. Yeah. Yeah. All right, number two. I put that he was in the Army. He was in the Army Reserves in the early 50s, did a year and a half. I always liked that piece of history in anybody's life. Can I add to that, number two? Because I liked that, but I liked even more than that. Did you get into some of the odd jobs he had growing up? Yeah, I saw some of them. They're sort of extraordinary. He was a cab driver. He worked in a pet shop. He sold vacuum cleaners. This guy was uh, saying yes to every want ad in the newspapers. And somewhere along the way was in the Army. How about number three? That he created the Vulcan salute that is so well-known on Star Trek that accompanies live long and prosper. I would assume something like that came from a writer's room, but it came from him, and I learned it was inspired actually by the way Jewish priests hold their hands when they give a blessing. Oh, I didn't find that part. Wow. That's interesting. Because he was Jewish. He was Jewish. Yeah. And he was, yeah, I mean, he was, it was a big part of his life. I actually had that one as well. Okay, number four. Number four was that he was a stage actor, and specifically he played Randy McMurphy in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest a year before Jack Nicholson did. I would have loved to have seen that performance. Leonard Nimoy in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest sounds kind of intense. Can I, I'm going to do another you can addendum have, to that. You take number five. Just well, no, make- no, no, I, I want to just uh, add on to your number five. It wasn't just that he was also a stage actor. I really like, this guy had an artist's life. He did photography. He had like a big exhibit somewhere in Massachusetts. He uh, was a writer. You mentioned the directing. And then his music career. Career is probably a generous term, but he had several albums and even did a cover of I Walk the Line, Johnny Cash. Because you're mine, I walk the line. He's got a great voice, but this is somebody who's like got creative energy that's going into a lot of different places. So I love that he was a stage actor, but even more than that, I love that he just had all these creative endeavors. And does seem like kind of an artsy kind of guy, you know, like hanging out with him. There's there's sort of the, the vibe, the creativity, which is cool. All right, number five, what do you got? I like that he and William Shatner, his co-star, were seemingly actually best friends, that they became best friends in the show and had this 50-year enduring friendship that they described like a brotherhood. Yeah, it sounded like it had some ups and downs in places, but it does get referenced a lot, which I found surprising because my understanding of Shatner is that this guy is not an easy personality. Like, he's not somebody easy to hang out with. I I have no understanding of Shatner. I, I don't know where I picked that up, but I feel like I've heard Shatner, he's not an easy hang. And maybe I'm wrong about that, but that, that he and Nimoy were actually friends, there's something really sweet about that. Is he there? still around? Shatner? Shatner? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Shatner's still with us. He had some very heartwarming tweets in 2015 when Leonard Nimoy died. I would imagine. Yeah. Well, that's a great list. The only one that's not sort of somewhere on there, he did mention at one point that he learned to be a supporting actor as a result of being a second child that he was not the oldest in his family. And so at some point he discovered, I'm not going to be a lead man and made peace with that in his acting career. His method for getting used to that idea was that he had an older brother. There's something about that sort of acceptance of, because I think that's got to be a hard thing for an actor if you come to a place where it's like, I thought I was a leading performer and I'm not. Where my value is in the acting market is support. I don't know. Isn't that kind of a hard thing to make peace with? Yeah, but like you said, it's an admirable thing because there's so much self-awareness behind it. Yeah. There's a lot to love about this guy. There's a lot to love about Leonard Nimoy. Okay, let's go on to question two, Malkovich Malkovich. This is named for the movie Being John Malkovich, in which there's a secret portal that'll take you to a front row seat of this person's experiences. Amit, if you were going to be Leonard Nimoy at some point, is there a moment that strikes your fancy, that has your curiosity? Yeah, what I'd like to see from behind his eyes is a very early Star Trek convention. I think the the first one I read was 1972, so let's call it like the second one. Because we know a lot about his life afterwards, that there was a lot of identity confusion and things like that. But I just want to know what that feels like and what that looks like, that you've created a character and you have people amassing and traveling and devoting many of them their lives around a character that you play. That's a really good one. So in other words, the Star Trek convention where you 
for the first time realize the, for want of a better term, fanaticism around the show and around and even around your character specifically, that you might have heard about that. There might have been fan mail. There might have been people on the street. But at at a convention, they are all there for that purpose. It makes it much more real because it's like I'm not only an entertainer, I've got a little more of a responsibility. And was this intentional and do I want this? And how do I handle this? And what do I do? Yeah, what do I do? Yeah, what an intense moment to, to like sort of see like, I don't know what other points of comparison there would have been. Beatlemania strikes me as sort of similar. Fans out of their minds, screaming their heads off. And, you know, Star Trek is not quite that necessarily, but there is a a level of devoteedism. Yeah. That's the word I was looking for, was devotional. Devotional, yeah. It's incredible. Actually, this is a good point to pause and ask. What's your relationship to Star Trek? Almost none. I watched the movies, I think, as a kid, the first run movies. I think occasionally I watched the series, the black and white series on reruns. The original. The original. It's not even black and white. That's how that's much how, you That's how close I was to it. About this, uh, yeah. And it stopped at that. I think I was entertained somewhat by it, but don't know that much about it. What about you? Almost no relationship to the original series. I do remember seeing, I think it was Star Trek Four. It might have been five in the theaters, but I didn't really understand the backstory or the universe. However, I mean, if you judge it by other Trekkies, I'm pretty far down the list in terms of my fandom, but I'm pretty enthusiastic about Next Generation, TNG, as the Trekkies say. I got into it in high school. By the way, Star Trek Next Generation holds up remarkably well. It has some real, true utopian elements. And maybe you know this about the show, but there is a way in which the future that's portrayed in Star Trek is such a logical extension of the hopeful future that emerges in the 1960s and 70s. And that's not just like sort of politically progressive, but it's like the things that matter to us and the way we should organize and the way we should demonstrate leadership and the way we should deal with conflicts and resolve them. One of the reasons there is such devotion to the Star Trek universe is because of the the moral center created by Gene Roddenberry and then extended on in the, in the other iterations. That, and then I think both the original and Next Generation are extraordinarily well cast. I think that there's a richness of character and of fellowship and friendship and respect that's just great. It's great. I really encourage you to get into Next Generation. I've heard that and people say it all the time and I believe them, people whose opinions I hold dear. Yeah. There's a sci-fi chasm that I, I have trouble crossing. Chasm or chasm? It's a sci-fi chasm. Okay. It's a sci-fi chasm. It's, uh, it's a chasm. That sounds sci-fi. serious. Yeah, that would be. Okay. Anyway, so, so there's, there's a sci-fi chasm for you. Yeah, there's a sci-fi chasm. So what is your Malkovich moment? I had two that I really struggled with. So one thing that there are some pretty good accounts of is that Leonard Nimoy identifies as an alcoholic, and he at some point goes to rehab. It sounds like in the late 80s. And I don't know if he ever went into a 12-step program, but if he ever went into the rooms of AA and said, I'm Leonard Nimoy and I'm an alcoholic, just to be in that room and think, fucking Spock, he's an alcoholic? I would have wanted to have been in the room for that. Let me give you my other Malkovich moment. When he was a cab driver, I don't know if you came across this story. I didn't find cab driver. He was a cab driver in Massachusetts and gave a ride to Senator John F. Kennedy before he was president, and Kennedy stiffed him. He ran out on the fair. On the whole thing, not just the tip. (laughs) So my Malkovich moment would have been Kennedy's election. And what year was it? It was in the late 50s. Must have been, because Kennedy is elected 1960 and assassinated in 63. So I think Kennedy's election... You know, for Leonard Nimoy, just like the whole country is looking at this, you know, youthful senator from Massachusetts, and this is the beginning of the 1960s, and he's he's thinking, that son of a bitch stiffed me on cab fare. He owes me three bucks. (laughs) Exactly. I like the conflicting emotions. And the other thing is Nimoy is fairly active in democratic politics, so I have to assume he supported him despite that, but who knows. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. 
Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Okay, on to the next question. Are there any divorces? If so, how many? And is there anything else we know? What do you got? Two marriages. First one, 32 years. Second one, two years after that, that lasted until his death. Yeah. First marriage was the one that produced children. Yep. Second marriage, did you catch that bit of trivia? Susan Bay, the cousin of Michael Bay. Cousin of Michael Bay. Hollywood seems like a small place sometimes. Yeah. Anything to draw from the one long, ultimately failed marriage? And then a second marriage sort of conclusion. I mean, what it, this is always a tough category for us because the data is important. Do you come across somebody who's had four or five marriages? Then it's pretty clear they struggled in their love life. Nimoy's divorce comes around the time of three men and a baby and around the time that he goes into rehab. And then he marries, remarries two years later. So it does seem like there is a lot going on with him at that moment in time in the late 80s. Star Trek, the movies have, I think, begun to conclude. You may have a directing career coming about, but a marriage is falling apart, and yet he also has, I mean, Three Men and a Baby, apart from being a chuckle to remember, was a box office smash. Like, it was incredibly successful and did afford him new opportunities. So with all of that, what are we to make of the divorce? Anything? It seems like a lot of things could have been converging at his time, both sort of creatively, internally, and abuse-wise. But I think he could have been becoming a different person than he thought he was, Yeah, which I think is great in terms of growth, but it never sits well with me that a marriage ends after 32 years. Never sits well with me. Yeah, I kind of know what you mean. If a marriage lasts multiple decades, my inclination is to say, seems like these two people really probably must have known much earlier than when they divorced that this was a marriage that they both needed to not be in, whether they both reached that conclusion or not. So is that kind of where you're going with a marriage that lasts 32 years and then ends in divorce? Yeah, that's. I think that's where my concern is, is that how long did you sit with it? How long was their suppression? Was it not coming out that you were doing it for other people's sake? And maybe that's not true, but that's where my concern lies. Yeah. When it raises I hear, questions. Yeah. When I hear friends, you know, speculate about other friends or people we know, and they talk about, oh, I bet you that couple doesn't last after the kids go to college. Yeah. That scares the hell out of me about what you have to go through until then. Yeah, I agree. It creates some pause. But the fact that he also remarried and stayed remarried up until death, I'm sort of like the first marriage gives me some pause and raises questions for me. The second marriage, I think, warms my heart, probably, right? It feels like without any other information, my guess is that it was a good second decision, you know? Yeah, the end of the story sounds great. I just don't know, but people should change. Everything changes. Everything's impermanent. So it should be totally okay that you go through a transformation that leads to a different life. Mm. But there's so many other parties involved, including children, friends, but most importantly, your own internalization. Let's go on to the next question. 
net worth, what did you find? This is a question four. I saw $45 million. That's what I saw. Holy shit, right? Oh, you've got to believe it. The amount of franchising and merchandising or whatever that he must have had some piece of, plus the many iterations of the movie, all of which he was seemingly involved in in some degree. But there's a world in which he doesn't capitalize on that. Like, he gets that $45 million because he was wise enough to negotiate for it. Yeah. And he seems smart. Am I giving him smart credit just because he's Spock? Or was he actually a smart guy? I have a hard time imagining a performer that isn't smart, but that can perform smart. Very good point. I feel like to bring the kind of hyper-rationality and intellect that we come to associate with Spock, that's got to be in there. So yes, my inclination is he's bright. So with that, some smart business-making decisions. Well, and the articles I read about this in my research said that he was actually somewhat ruthless in terms of negotiating for some of the profit-sharing as the franchise comes into film and expands. So much so that I think he had some real heated arguments with Gene Roddenberry, the creator. The other thing is that my understanding of the Star Trek history... So first there's a pilot, and that pilot is rejected. But there was enough of a a reception with the executives that they said, do another pilot. So they come back and mostly recast the show for the second pilot of the original Star Trek. And he's one of the very few holdovers who was on both the first and the second pilot. The show gets the green light. It goes for three or four years, but it does not perform well at all. It is not a success. Then it goes into syndication and it's on reruns. While it's in reruns in the late 60s and early 70s, that's when the devoted fan base begins to emerge and people are sort of nutso around this show. And so at that point, thought about bringing back the TV show and then they decide to do it as feature-length films. I think somewhere in there is where Nimoy gets pretty ruthless about uh, negotiating for profit sharing and for franchise rights or whatever with Spock. Like, I'm not going to participate in these movies unless I'm able to get a cut. So I think the other thing, though, and I don't know when this happens, I think it's in that early 70s period, but in that period, I think, is when the fandom is beginning to emerge. It's also very clear that Spock is perhaps the most beloved character, like more so than Captain Kirk. And I think there's got to be some recognition on Nimoy's part, obviously, if he dies with a net worth of $45 million. I feel pretty good about it. That's immense wealth. That's generational wealth. Yeah. And I think kind of rare for somebody that came about in that era. Any other conclusions to draw from that number? I mean, that is generational wealth. For me, that crosses a threshold of uncomfortable wealth. But I'm also like sort of happy for Leonard Nimoy and for Spock for having milked this baby for all it's worth. You know, if you're going to create one of the most iconic TV characters of all time, you know, you freaking payout for that. Yeah. If I had seen 15 million, or if I had seen even 10 million, I would have said, great. I don't want to say it feels too high. It's just, it's more than I expected. Yeah. But what we said about the devotion, I think there should be additional compensation for the amount of externalities around that franchise and that character. It should be in excess, I think, of other people that just played a character on TV that entertained people. I agree with that, but I also think that this gets back to your chasm. I think the importance is that this is the kind of thing that can only happen in science fiction. Maybe not only in science fiction, but science fiction enables a kind of imagining of different, better, more extreme versions of humanity. And Spock is not human, he's half Vulcan, but because of that imaginative exercise of a science fiction character, like that's how he's able to be even more important and transcendent, maybe is a better word. Yeah, and science fiction and religion have a whole lot of overlap. Yeah. If you bring it back to money, that's there's going to be a lot more money flowing into that when you get into beliefs rather than just liking. That's a great point. All right. Question five, Simpsons, SNL, and or Hollywood <laughs> Walk of Fame. For some reason, I, th- I knew what the question was, but I thought you were going to say Hollywood Squares, and that made me laugh. <laughs> Um, I'll take the easy one. I know he has a Hollywood Walk of Fame. I saw that in the entry and just fits all the criteria for that. I'll take the next one. I knew he was on The Simpsons, and I had forgotten that he's in the monorail episode, which is one of the all-time best. Oh, that is one of the best. Yeah. As himself? Actually, that I don't remember, because he's on The Simpsons three times, and one of them, 
I'm pretty sure was a Halloween special. I know he does appear as himself. I think he's as himself in the monorail episode. I'm a little disappointed that I can't actually remember. But yeah, he's, he's all over The Simpsons. Well, my work is done here. What do you mean your work is done? You didn't do anything. <laughs> didn't I? And then finally, Saturday Night Live, what'd you get? I didn't see it. Certainly, Star Trek came up a lot on Saturday Night Live. I couldn't find whether he was actually on it or not. What I found is that he does have a cameo, and I think it's around the time that there's a reboot of the original Star Trek in the 20-teens with the J.J. Abrams-backed movies. And there's a kind of, like, handing over that happens where Leonard Nimoy appears in the movie and has a conversation with the younger version of himself played by the younger actor. I think they did a segment on that on Saturday Night Live. So he appears as a cameo, and certainly there's references, but he never hosted Saturday Night Live from what I saw yeah, and the pop cultural overlaps of Star Trek are immense. It's shown up in tons and tons of places in TV shows. So his validation in this category is he blows it out of the water. Yeah, I would say he's also benefits from a, a unique name. Leonard Nimoy is a really, like, it has a, rolls off the tongue in a nice way. And I would also say one other sort of mark for fame for me here is the fact that you know who he is and who the character is while having very little relationship to the source material, it's almost like Michael Jordan or LeBron James. Like, you don't necessarily need to be watching the NBA to know that these are next-level superstar, extraordinary athletes. Yeah, without being an action hero or a comedy superstar, which are those types of things that I think we associate with the superheroes of entertainment. Yes, Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Okay, we've reached the second half of our show, where we are going to try and ask some questions that get more at the inner life. What's going on inside, as best we can infer. Question number one, man in the mirror. Did he like his reflection? Your thoughts? I said yes. And the reason I say is his smile. It looks authentic. It looks satisfied. And it looks like he's had some good times in front of a mirror. I basically had the same reaction. Pretty sure he likes his own reflection. It is worth saying that he does play with his appearance some. There's a mustache that comes and goes. When he covers Johnny Cash, the album cover, he's got some pretty serious sideburns and looks to be wearing a kind of country pop-button shirt. So, you know, whenever I see an actor doing that, sort of experimenting with their appearance, I wonder a little bit. But actually, I think that the more I think on that, that's a stupid thought because I think actors are always playing around with their appearance. And plus, this man is struggling with his relationship to Spock. So I agree. I think he liked his look. Yeah, you have to because it's one of those looks that you can't change too much with hairstyle and clothes. Yeah. The frame and the diamond-shaped head. Yeah. You either don't like yourself or you kind of really like it. And he seems to be in the really like it category. He seems very comfortable in his skin. I want to add to this. He also looks like his name. Mm, that's a good call. And I, I like that. I named a dog in the last two weeks and I've been wondering, will the dog look like the name? And... Leonard Nimoy's parents, or if you want to go wherever up the family tree, the first name and the last name, he looked like it. Good call on that. All right. This one's always pretty quick. Outgoing message. Did he record the message on his cell phone or his home answering machine? Your thoughts? I just said no. I think his voice was great and fine, but what we saw in his self-identification problems with the separation between Spock and himself, to me that comes out when you hear your own voice a lot more than it does in the mirror. Huh. And my gut instinct is no. 
that he didn't like hearing his own voice. It's not that he didn't like his voice. He didn't like hearing it. I think it's a really compelling argument. I mean, I wrote, yeah, he liked it. And part of it was that he did voiceover work, things beyond Star Trek here and there. But you're also very right about how word choice and inflection and kind of the beat of how he talked was so specific. And you do have to wonder if when he hears that, he is thinking Spock. That's a really good call on it. Yeah, when you're so singularly associated with playing a character for as long as he did, as important of a character as it was, that had this devotion. And to a lot of people, there was trouble separating the man from the character. And that character reads from a script all the time. I just think you don't want to hear yourself outside of your own natural ears and conversation. What a weird thought, though, because you can't escape it either. But when you hear it, you do have a third-person experience. Yeah, you can't escape it, but you can choose not to where you have choices to make. You know, just like a practice of meditation, you can choose your thoughts. No different of you perfectly have an option of whether to allow the pre-recorded message on your answer machine or to put your own. (laughs) Right. And that's what I think he would have done. At least if I were playing the character of Leonard Nimoy with everything I know, I wouldn't want to. It's a really good answer. I mean, how he actually felt is a little bit beside the point. How he might have felt and the argument for how he might have felt is what's important about your answer there. Yeah, and it's, what's going on there it's a provable life. fact. Somebody can yeah. say, oh yeah, I used to call Leonard Nimoy all the time and he recorded his voice. <laughs> but the point is knowing what we know about him, would that type of person or that type of soul want to hear their voice? So this is a great segue into our next question. Regrets, public or private? This is, I think, pretty clearly where we're going to get into his relationship to Spock. Do you want to lead us off here? I've got several thoughts, but you yeah, go first. You brought up earlier, do we want to talk about the autobiographies? And this is where I had it. Because so he wrote two autobiographies. I think they were about 10-ish years apart. 20. 20 yeah. apart. Yeah. Okay. The first called I Am Not Spock, the second called I Am Spock. I Am Not Spock, 1975. I Am Spock, I think, around 1995. Okay. And if we just frame around the first one, there was a lot of identity crisis, we think, behind it, playing this character for so often, and it being difficult to separate who you are from who you are playing. I don't even think we think. We know. We're not even speculating. Yeah, we're not even speculating. I mean, he is fairly open about... So there's several things about that first autobiography, I Am Not Spock. Apparently, the title is misleading. It is not a book about him saying, I am not Spock, necessarily. But it is certainly a book about his own identity assertion. And the structure of the book, apparently is one where he is in dialogue with a character. So Leonard says a line, Spock responds. Spock says a line, Leonard responds, right? That was the format of this autobiography. The titles themselves, I mean, obviously he would have titled the second one, I Am Spock, were it not for the first book that's called I Am Not Spock. And his ability to discuss in a public forum his conflicted relationship with the character certainly qualifies it as a kind of regret. But what exactly is the regret? Because one of the quotes I found, I'll read this to you, says, I definitely went through an identity crisis. The question was whether to embrace Mr. Spock or to fight the onslaught of public interest. I realize now that I really had no choice in the matter. Spock and Star Trek were very much alive and there wasn't anything that I could do to change that. So he's powerless over this. So how is it a regret? Like, what the fuck's he going to do, you know? The regret is not maintaining a balance that led to that point or that crisis or that sort of self-torture. Wouldn't it inevitable, though? I just don't know. If you have that kind of uh, experience where you create a character that is so revered, so important, so valorized, so talked about and discussed, and where the public emotions around what this character represents are so so much bigger than you, aren't you going to have a conflict there? I don't see how you go through life any other way if that happens. I mean, it's a unique thing to happen to a character actor, and he's not the only one, but I do think he's maybe one of the shiniest examples in terms of being able to divorce the actor from the character. Yeah, you can do a walk away, you can do a sabbatical, you can do a reclusion, something like J.D. Salander, but I think what's very difficult about what we've been talking about, about the importance of Spock, is it was it was really personal to a lot of people. It's very different from J.D. Salinger not writing another mass-released 
novel. It's very different because you have almost this religious following, and so you can't do that. So maybe there's a regret in not having that balance, but maybe later on it's an acknowledgement of never having that choice in the matter. Yeah, that's what I think the quote I read was sort of getting at. You can only understand that with hindsight. If in 1975, you know, the show's only run once, the movies haven't happened, but you've still had a couple of conventions and you've got this following, you don't really know how much you are doing this because of the importance to other people. You just think that you didn't do a good job in maintaining a balance and separating yourself. I mean, what's confusing about that, though, too, is the devotion to the character is also a recognition of just how good you did performing the character, right? That you did bring something to life that only existed on the page before. And so it is both something that you may feel conflicted about, but it's also, in some ways, at least a partial recognition of your talent as an actor. It's so hard, though, to feel like shit when you are doing so good. And that's what makes it really hard, I think, because it's like this extraordinary reception and acknowledgement of how good of an actor and how good you play this character, yet you're conflicted. And the whirlwind around that and how the tornado that confused inside of your head, regrets certainly come up. I mean, it certainly seems like he resolved them. Yeah. But that doesn't make the ride any less painful or the regrets at the time. Sure. No, I have no doubt that between 1970 and 1995, there were moments when Leonard Nimoy said to himself, I wish I'd never played that fucking character where he felt boxed in or hamstrung or limited. I did listen to an interview that he gave when I Am Spock came out. It was a very short 16-minute interview. And he clearly did the work of coming to have a lot of gratitude and a lot of recognition for this was a good thing that happened to me. I'm honored by the fans. If somebody throws me the Vulcan salute on the street, I'm going to throw it right back. Live long and prosper. I will say that to my fans. I want to maintain my privacy and I have a way of achieving that. But this is a net positive in my life. I mean, he's saying that very publicly in 1995. And I think that's a pretty consistent thing that he continues to say until his death. So uh, he finds the resolution and the titles of the autobiographies more or less convey that. My heart goes out to him, though, and to any character actor. There's no shortage of actors who do such a successful job portraying a TV character that it's a hard thing for an audience to see them as anything else, or at least on the big screen. That seems like a fate that kind of sucks. It is a unique problem in our celebrity Hollywood society, right? One of the questions I have for you, Amit, is if you're going to go through that, I would want to go through it the way Leonard Nimoy did. I'm so glad he found sort of acceptance and gratitude on the other side of it. But is that a shitty fate for somebody who wants to act literally and explore a range of characters and demonstrate their dynamism and range and so forth? Does that kind of suck to be forever remembered as a single character? I don't think that's the right question because it's the, you're talking about the remembrance of a single character and we're talking about the regret at the time. Yeah. So another regret that he was very public about was smoking. Yeah. Because that's ultimately what or killed probably, him. And yeah. he lived a long time. I mean, he was... 83, held, yeah. Yeah, but it was smoking. Yeah. And he smoked for 30 years and became a pretty big anti-smoking advocate. And he said he wished he never did it. Kids, if you're listening, don't smoke. Yeah. You also have to wonder about the first marriage, you know? I mean, it's a private... I didn't find anything that was obviously him saying it was a shitty marriage and I should have gotten out of it 15 years earlier. But the way it ends and then the second marriage happens pretty quickly and all the stuff about rehab in there, and you got to wonder if that's also a regret. I don't think there's any way the marriage was a regret. It could just be the length. Yeah. I'll give you one other... Did you know that he was on an episode of the original Twilight Zone? No. So it's an interesting episode. Happens to star uh, also Dean Stockwell of Quantum Leap fame. The concept is sort of interesting. The setting is in the Philippines during World War II, and there's all these Japanese soldiers held up in a cave, and the Americans are deciding whether or not to bomb them out or something. And something happens to the Dean Stockwell character where suddenly he's transformed into a Japanese soldier. And the insensitivities, the reasons it doesn't hold up well, is the, the makeup work is, as you might imagine, a little insensitive. But the idea was sort of, it was trying to show, like, 
were both soldiers on both sides of this. And I think Dean Stockwell, as the Japanese soldier, like has a hard conversation about why they should not bomb the Americans while he's stuck at having this sort of out-of-body experience. Anyway, Leonard Nimoy happens to be in that episode. Interesting. I'd like to tell a story about Japanese soldiers in a cave, which I am not sure has anything to do with this episode, but we're talking about it. This is our podcast. We can do whatever (laughs) the fuck we want. So I I spent a month in Guam, actually on Guam. You say on Guam. Is this when you were driving the Wienermobile? Yeah. Yeah. Our listeners don't need to know why that. That's far too much information. (laughs) But the Wienermobile is a... Exactly what it sounds like. It is a hot dog-shaped car. Correct. And I took it on a tour of Guam in 2001. (laughs) Anyway, you can tour these falls on the island of Guam... And in one of these falls, which is sort of national parky, it's not quite a national park, yeah. they have a cave there that's marked, and it is, I forget the guy's name, but it was a Japanese guy's cave. And when World War II sort of broke out, he went into hiding into this cave and did not come out for 27 years, I Oh, believe. so this is one of those stories of he didn't realize the war had ended because any assumed the Japanese would never surrender? Yeah, So he didn't know about the atomic bombs and all that? Correct. But you also just, you lose all concept of time and self or whatever, but you... you Apparently, 27 years, Jesus Christ. But you still have the survival instinct in you, I guess. Yeah. But those, like, of all the things that occur in human life, those things are consistently really, really shock me that people are able to do that, that the human mind and body can endure that. That isolation? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, We're nearing the end. We've got one more question for the grand finale. Let's move on. Cocktail, coffee, or cannabis? Which one would you have wanted to partake with, with Leonard Nimoy? I'd say cocktail. I say this knowing that he was an alcoholic, so I don't say that lightly. Yeah. But given the sort of emotional suppression and all that he talked about and the concern about self-identity in these characters, I think he'd just have a lot to talk about over a really nice long session of drinks. And I'd like to just have that sort of flowing conversation that comes with uninhibited speech of having drinks together. Do you want to hear him talk about his relationship to Spock over those drinks? Yeah, I kind of do. about his understanding of himself as reflected through Spock? Yeah, I want to hear about the understanding of self versus a character you play or what you see or what you hear or what you do. Just the understanding of self. But I think it's one of those really long dinner or drink type of conversations. Yeah. I have to say, I'm curious to read the autobiographies. Not the I Am Not Spock one. I think the 1995 one, though, that might be a nice little read. What is your choice, cocktail, coffee, or cannabis? I went coffee, and I tend to go with coffee when I sense an intellect and a creative force. That brought this up earlier. If Spock is brilliant, right? And I don't think you can portray brilliant unless you are kind of brilliant. And his creative expressions and his art, I think Leonard Nimoy was probably smart as hell. And whenever anybody's that bright, I kind of just want to hear them go. I kind of want to get them jacked up in coffee and hear them just spout ideas and have a really energetic conversation where we're exploring life, the universe, and everything, like how important sci-fi was. And I would love to hear why he thinks people responded to Spock the way they did. I mean, we all have our assumptions, but I think he would understand what that character represents to an audience in a way, or he'd have a unique take on it. I'd love to just like pound coffee and hear him go. I kind of want him to show up to your coffee meeting and just want to talk about football. <laughs> like you're sitting down for a lesson in life. Yeah, exactly. Turns out he's a, he's a big fan of the Ohio State Buckeyes or something. All right. So we've reached the Vanderbeek, named after James Vanderbeek, who in Varsity Blues famously said, I don't want your life. To the listeners, no, Ahmet and I have an agreement not to have a decision about this until after we've had the conversation. I have a little bit of a lean, but Ahmet, Here's the question for you. Do you want Leonard Nimoy's life? Without giving you the full answer initially, let me first say I think it was pretty good. The cycle, the reckoning, the friendships, all of it looked pretty good and wrapped up really nicely. I think it's really good and beyond decent life. However, no, I do not want it. And the reasons are... So the singular character association. I like variety. I need variety the way I think my inner self works. 
the singular character association, despite what it did for so many people, just the reckoning that he had to go through and specifically the emotional turmoil, even if it resolved, I wouldn't want that. I would prefer resolution of emotional turmoil through a lot more opportunity of trial and error. And so is that to say that he didn't experience freedom? That there's something about being trapped in the perception of this character and the relationship to this iconic, transcendent, fictional character that limits him and confines him in terms of possibility? Yeah, and I think eventually what you have to tell yourself is the character chose you in some way, and that's, yeah. that's how you reckon with it. But there is a lack of freedom in the singular association with one thing that means so much to some people, but you didn't set out with that intention and you struggled with it. Yeah. But, but really specifically, just the singular focus of a character, of just your life being so singular associated with a character is what I don't like. I don't think we're even talking about acting here. I just think the singular association with something that you are not. And the other part of it that I struggle with is that a stranger, we shouldn't care what strangers think, but the fact that a stranger would mostly only know you as that thing is something that I wouldn't want. I don't like that it took me until last week to know that he directed Three Men and a Baby. <laughs> I wish that it was part. That is, that is an insult. Yeah. yeah, I wish it was part of a larger body of work. Yeah, that I knew. So, so many parts of it sound great. And I think the cycle it was pretty incredible and impressive and admirable. But no, I don't want it. Michael, do you want Leonard Nimoy's life? I think a pretty emphatic. Yes. I recognize and am sympathetic to a lot of your reluctance and hesitation around that. When you said a second ago, I'm not sure we're even talking about acting. You know, I always come back to that Shakespeare quote, all the world is but a stage. We're all acting. Whatever you see here is a performance, and I can work, and whatever anybody sees in the world, I'm putting on a face. I try to live an authentic existence, and I try to keep my inner self pretty close to the surface so that I don't feel like I'm in a constant state of performance in terms of playing the role of Michael Osborne in the world. But I do feel like that's part of the human condition. It is a weird thing to have many parts of the general public not be able to divorce their understanding of your character from who you are. But in another sense, I feel like that's part of the human experience. And I also think the character is just so good. I don't know Spock that well, but what I do know is that there is a devotion to reason. And part of the reason the Star Trek universe is successful is because it valorizes the scientific pursuit and the scientific tradition and enlightenment principles. And that is embodied in this character and is synonymous with this character. Of, you know, when economists talk about like the rational actor, right? Like they're thinking about Freck and Spock. And so it's such a point of contrast with what how we sometimes think of humanity and who we really are, right? All our emotional complexity underneath. And to see somebody take that extreme example of those character rational traits and put it on display and say, this is what it looks like. How much do you like that or not? You know, and like the way the audiences wrestle with that character, both in terms of loving him, but also, also not being able to access the inner underneath life. What an accomplishment, I think I'm good, maybe. I don't know, but I think I'm good with, like, one great success, you know? I think I would rather be an actor who knocks it out of the park with one character than a working actor, but somebody who's in a lot of different roles and shows up a lot of different places, and we all kind of like and admire his talent. He demonstrates the range. I think to, like really knock it out of the park with one character is a great life accomplishment. And then I love Nimoy's journey. I like that we saw him publicly wrestle 
with his relationship to the character between two autobiographies. And then, you know, when I hear him talk about it, in that interview I mentioned I listened to, I heard grace, I heard humility, I heard peace of mind, I heard generosity, I heard gratitude. What he accomplished and everything he went through, yeah, I'll take it. That's pretty good. There's maybe more I want in places, but I think I'd take it. I'm not changing my answer, but I liked your arguments. We've arrived. The end of the show. Amit, you are Leonard Nimoy. You've gone to the Pearly Gates. You're before St. Peter. You have an opportunity to make your pitch. The stage is yours. Here I am. You probably know me as the public in the world did as Spock. That's not the argument I'm going to make. The argument I'm going to make is really about humanity, about arts, and about friendship. Through my acting, I was able to create a character that was part of a larger narrative that allowed a lot of people to come up with an explanation and hope for life in a future. It wasn't easy for me always, and there was some selflessness to it. I understand saying the word selfless erases selflessness. But what I'm saying is I started as an actor, but what eventually became of it was a way for people to relate to the rest of life. And I gave a lot of my time, a lot of my identity towards that. A lot of people can do that in a lot of ways. That was just my art form. So that's what I did as a public service. Certainly made me very successful through it all. I'm also somebody who had really close friends. And a lot of my fans, without ever knowing me, even if they met me for a second or only saw me on screen, also saw me as a friend. So giving the world a way to define, relate, and be a friend to was my contribution to this earth. Let me in. Thank you for listening to this episode of Famous and Gravy. If you're enjoying our show, please go to Apple Podcasts to rate and review. You can sign up for our mailing list at famousandgravy.com, and you can follow us on Twitter at Famous and Gravy. Our show was co-created by Amit Kapoor and me, Michael Osborne, mixing, mastering, and sound design by Morgan Honecker, graphic design by Brandon Burke, and original music by Kevin Strang. Thank you again for listening and hope to see you next time. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.